service that you would send your Holy Spirit to illumine to our hearts and to our minds the truth that you have for us this morning. Lord, we ask with the psalmist that you would deal humbly with your servant and that you would open up your words and reveal them to us so that we can walk according to them. So Father, I pray for these next several moments as we dig in and we study your word and we hear what you have for us this morning, that you would just block out those distractions, that you would take those worries that we had from last week and what we might be thinking about this coming week, Father, and just cause them to pass from our minds. Father, help us to focus on Christ. Father, help us as we seek to hear from you this morning. But I pray for strength and I pray for boldness. I ask that as I proclaim your word, that the Spirit would take it from my lips to the ears and the hearts of those who are hearing that you reply. Father, all I can do is proclaim your word and it's up to the Spirit to do with it what he will. Father, we're trusting you. I'm trusting in the power of your word to change hearts this morning. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean, the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise. But God gave it to Abraham. Stories told of a woman who died and she left all of her property to a Christian university. And according to the very precise wording of her will, all of her worldly goods were bequeathed to a particular educational institution. And as you can imagine, much to the dismay of her children, 
who lived on the other side of the country, they were surprised and shocked and upset when they learned that they had effectively cut out the will. See, all of the property went to this organization. They were outraged that this college had taken advantage of the mother in this way, and they decided to contest this in the court of law. So, what they tried to do is claim that when she said she left all of her worldly possessions, she did not mean real estate and money. It was just the physical goods that she had. But in the end, they lost their case. And with it, any chance of gaining an inheritance. There was nothing they could do to change what the will had said because the will had been finalized and ratified at the death of their mother. It had been settled at that point and made legal. Now, up to this point in Galatians chapter 3, Paul has made three arguments. First, he has argued from the experience of the Galatians that justification comes by faith based on their experience. In Galatians 3.6, when he says that we who have believed in God and it was counted in his righteousness. In verses 10 through 14, Paul has argued from Scripture, showing that no one is justified for the, by the law because righteousness does not come from the law. But those who are righteous shall live by faith. In Galatians 3.11. And he's also said that cursed be anyone who does not abide in all things written in the book of law and do that. This morning Paul's going to make a theological argument for this very point. He's going to make a theological argument for justification by faith. And the reason I told you that little story about the woman and her will is because I need you to be thinking in a very specific Direction when we talk about wills, when we talk about the covenant, as Paul calls it. This is not a contract. This is not a, I'll help you if you help me, you do this, I'll do this. This is a last will and testament given to Abraham as a promise to Abraham. The word that our Bible, our English Bible, translates as covenant is diatheke in the Greek. And it can mean either will like the last will and testament, somebody that something, some, something that somebody writes up and says, when I die, this is what I want to have happen. Or it can be a covenant. So if any of you have a will, you know how this process works. You detail what you want to have happen to all of your property when you pass, and when you pass, whatever is in that will is set in stone. It's done. It's in concrete. Nobody can change it. This is the idea that you need to understand when Paul says in verse 15 that to give a human example, brothers, even a man-made covenant, even a man-made will, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Here's the argument Paul makes. He's making a lesser, an argument from the lesser to the greater. He says, you understand this concept. You, a fallen human creature, a man who can go back on his word, when you draw up a will or a covenant, it's finalized. It is done and not changing. How much more so is that true with God? See, the, the Judaizers in Galatia are trying to get the, Jew, the Galatian Jewish or Gentile Christians to believe that they have to do something in order to be justified. They have to act according to the law. They need to have a part to play in their salvation. And Paul's saying, no, 
Your salvation has been given to you by a promise. And he appeals to Galatians or Genesis 15. I'm going to turn back to Genesis 15. We're going to look at this because it's very important that you understand how this works. And when the people in ancient Near East would have heard covenant, you need to understand what's happening so that you can understand what Paul is doing. So in Genesis 15, we have a promise given to Abraham. Starting in verse 6, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. The Lord has just told Abraham that he is going to give him a son to be his heir. And he takes him outside and he says, look toward heaven and number the stars and if you are able to not number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the earth of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid them each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. So we draw up a legal document, we go into the lawyer, and we sign it. That's how we seal our wills. That's how we seal what we want to do. In the ancient Near East, there were covenants made. And what you've just witnessed is the beginning of a covenant ceremony. God told Abraham to bring him these animals, and Abraham cut them in half. So you have literally half of an animal laying on this side, and half of an animal laying on this side. And this is the way covenants were signed. What's going to happen, and what usually happens, is the one agreeing to the terms of the covenant walks between the two pieces. And what that person or that nation is essentially saying is, if I go back on my word, what has happened to these animals, let it be done to me. But I want you to notice what happens. Drop down to verse, well, in verse 12. As the sun was going down, Abraham fell asleep. And then God proposes or shows Abraham what's going to happen to the, to the Israelites when they come to Abraham. He says, Know for certain that your offspring will be soldiers in a land that is not theirs. He will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation, and they will serve, and afterward they shall come out with a great possession. As for you, you shall go into your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And then Watch what happens in verse 17. Remember, Abraham is sleeping. He says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. What's just happened? God himself has walked between those cut pieces. God himself has signed the covenant of his promise with himself. He's promised it to Abraham, but he is putting his reputation up as, if I don't follow through on this, let this be done to me. Think about that for a minute. If you go back to Galatians 3, this is exactly the point that Paul's making. 
In Galatians 3, he says, This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not at all covenant previously ratified by God. We've just seen God ratify that covenant when he himself passed between the animal pieces. So as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So God enters into this covenant relationship with Abraham back in Genesis 15. God himself makes himself the party of the covenant, saying, if I go back on this, let this be done to me. In the next couple of verses, God's going to show the purpose of the law. Paul's going to show the purpose of the law. But what you need to know now is the law was not put in purpose, was not put in place as a way to gain salvation. It had been promised to Abraham and to his descendant from Genesis 15 forward. If I were to tell you that I had $100, if you come to my house, I'll give you $100. What's it going to take for you to get that $100? All you need to do is believe that when you show up in my house, I'm going to give it to you. And you will have the $100. Now what happens if you show up to my house and you say, hey, I'm here for my $100. I say, well, hang on a second. How about you help me pull the weeds in my flower bed, you mow my grass, and you clean off my porch. Then I'll give you $100. Have I still promised you $100? No, I haven't promised you $100. I'm going to pay you for working for me. I'm going to give you your my $100, but you're going to have to earn it. It's not a promise anymore. A promise is... I'm going to do this, you show up, I'll do it. To think that the inheritance that God gave comes by way of law-keeping is not to take God at his word. He's promised it. If you were to show up in my house and I promised to give you $100 and I didn't give it to you after, until after you worked, what would you say? I went back on my word. I went back on the promise that I had given you. The same is true when it comes to God. He has given and promised an inheritance as a promise. And for us to think that we need to earn it, that we need to maintain it, that we need to do something in order to gain the right standing before God is to say, God, I'm not taking you at your word. God has given us the inheritance by a promise, which is why in Hebrews 6, you read, For when God made a promise to Abraham, still talking about Genesis 15, since he had nobody greater to by whom to swear, he swore by himself. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, and the very oath that he's swearing, we who have fled for refuge in Christ might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. To the Galatian church was in danger of not taking God at his word. How often do we find ourselves as we're walking through this life and we're struggling with the sin in our lives to question whether or not 
God's going to come through. Can God still love me even though I act like this? Can God still love me even though I'm sitting in this area and I can't seem to get past it? How often do we look to ourselves for our assurance? How often do we look to the process of our sanctification to judge our justification? And what is Paul showing us right here in this passage? Your justification by faith alone is guaranteed in Christ because of the promise that God gave to Abraham. That's exactly what he says in verse sixteen. He says the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now it does not say offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to offspring who is Christ. Every will has a beneficiary. Every covenant, every will has someone, or in the case of multiple people, some thing, some ones who are privy to the covenant, who are privy to the will. So if you have three kids and you pass away, if you're not cutting somebody out, your three kids will get equal inheritance or equal share. As we saw in the story beforehand, the woman gave all of her money to one organization. There is always a party to a will, to a covenant. And in this case, that party is Christ. Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham who was promised to be the one who inherits, who inherits the promises of God. This is why Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 says, For all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Now, I've preached on this before, and it is very vital at this point that we understand what it means to be in union with Christ, to have a faith union with Christ, because this is how we as believers gain access to that inheritance. When we place our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we, by faith, enter into a union with Him. In Galatians 3.27, Paul says that for all who are, have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And if you remember the analogy or the picture that I painted you in one of my last sermons on the day of baptism was when you put on Christ, it's like putting on a jacket. When you put on a raincoat, you reap the benefits of that raincoat. You don't get wet. When you put on Christ, it's like putting on that jacket of Christ. When God looks at you, he sees Christ. And you become the heirs of his promise, which is what Paul says in 3.29. The same is true with putting on faith on Christ by faith. We become Abraham's offspring. Heirs, the people that are given the inheritance we become heirs according to the promise. That is all because of Christ and what he's done for us. Folks, that's what this week is about. I said it at the beginning of the service, this week is about Christ coming for us. He is the death that solidifies the covenant. That's why at the Last Supper he says, this is my blood poured out for the new covenant. 
Remember I said promises don't come until somebody dies. Christ is the death that brings in the promises of the covenant. But Christ doesn't stay dead. Christ on the third day raises again and brings with him the promise of new and everlasting life through faith in him. See, what you need to understand is Paul right here is showing us not only that faith does not come by works of the law, that justification does not come by works of the law, but through faith we can have the assurance of salvation. You can be assured of your salvation in Christ today because God has promised it to you. If you put your faith and trust in Christ. As you study through this week, if you take my advice and read the Passion Week, if you read through what Christ suffered and died for you, it's called the active obedience of Christ. He came and he suffered and he did what the Father asked him to do on your behalf. Then he suffered the death that you should have suffered under the wrath of God that you should be under. All for you. Also that when he rose on the third day, you, through faith, could be joint heirs with him in his inheritance. To that I say, praise God. See, it doesn't rest with you. It doesn't rest with me. If I am joined to Christ by faith, if you have believed on Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you can have assurance that you are saved because God has promised it and he's sworn by himself to give it to you. So if you've never believed on Christ for the salvation of your sins, don't wait. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. There's no guarantee that tomorrow when you wake up, or if you wake up, that the world will be as it is today. So my urgent plea with all of you is to turn and to embrace Christ by faith for the forgiveness of your sins and enjoy that new life today. Because God's promised to give it to you. Let's pray.